0: morning, Calvary Bible Church family. Our text for this morning will be 2 Peter chapter 2. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 10. As you may recall from the previous times that we looked at 2 Peter together, we saw that the first chapter of this book Peter carefully reminded believers of the tremendous resources for growth in godliness that are provided through a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He exhorted them to pursue growth and make progress in their Christian walks. He reinvigorated his readers' confidence in the sure return of Jesus Christ, and he pointed them to the ultimate confidence that we have as we possess the scriptures. God's fully confirmed and divinely authoritative communication from Himself to us. In chapter two, there's a sharp transition from chapter one. In chapter two, we find that the instructions in chapter one are not merely abstract guidance, but rather they are Peter's earnest plea to pursue godliness and to cling to the sure hope of Christ's return amidst a coming onslaught of ungodliness and falsehood. Chapter two intensifies all that was said in chapter one. The end of chapter one finishes, for no prophecy, this is verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Then picking up in chapter two, Peter contrasts these true prophets with the false prophets and their lies. Read with me, Second Peter chapter two. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Pray with me again. Heavenly Father, as we approach this text, help us to be yielded to your word. Help us to be responsive to your spirit's application of it to our hearts and our lives. Help me to speak clearly and to rightly communicate what is in this passage and be with every heart and every ear here rather not to be a resistance to what your word has to say and how it applies to us today. We need your help in this hour, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is a heavy passage. This passage does not appeal to our desire for a feel-good pick-me-up at the beginning of the week. But nevertheless, it is a passage that the Lord wants us to hear. False teaching is a significant theme throughout Scripture because it presents a significant threat to the church. But false teaching is not just a threat to the church. Everyone would say that. But false teaching is a threat and a danger to our church and it's a threat and a danger to you. Scripture uses no uncertain terms when describing the danger, but that danger is amplified tenfold if we wrongly assume that false teaching is not a danger for us, but rather it's a danger for someone and some church out there. Our church is not immune to the destructive influences of false teaching. Your families are not immune to it. You are not immune to it. Pride makes us all the more vulnerable, and Satan wants our guard down. And furthermore, I want to be clear that in this passage, we're not primarily talking about the messages out there that you're hearing in the secular environment. We're bombarded by secular ideology and blatantly unbiblical worldviews all the time. But that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking specifically about wolves among the sheep. This passage warns of the ideas, the concepts, the advice, and the influences that wear a Christian mask. But underneath the surface, they have an anti Christian core. In this passage, we're going to find five features of the sobering threat of false teachers. Five features of the sobering threat of false teachers. False teachers are a sure threat, they're a serious threat, they're a widespread threat, they're a deceptive threat, and they are a condemned threat. As we unpack these, each of these features, we'll also look at something to do in light of each of these features. So the first, in verse one, false teachers are a sure threat. Look again at verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you false teachers are nothing new even as god's truth goes out satan who is the father of lies john 8 44 sends forth his falsehood simultaneously god's people were warned through moses in deuteronomy 13 that false prophets would come and that god would actually use the wickedness of false teachers to test and to refine his people But even in the light of this warning that the people of Moses' day received, they were still influenced and they were still led astray by the influence of false prophets. In Jeremiah 23, verse 32, you don't have to turn there, God said that he is, quote, against those who prophesy lying dreams and who lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. Later in Jeremiah 29, 8 through 9, he says, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. False teachers are not new. There will be false teachers. If Peter had desired to communicate possibility, he could easily say there might be false teachers. But rather, he uses the definite future reality. He says it is a clear reality coming Jesus also promised that false teachers would come in Matthew 24 and and various places in Matthew 24 12 he says many false prophets will arise and lead many astray so because false teachers are a sure threat therefore expect to encounter false teaching expect to encounter false teaching Do you watch Christian shows or Christian movies with the expectation of encountering false representations of Jesus Christ? Scripture makes painfully clear that false teaching will be a regularly encountered reality for believers. Yet many people still act as though this impact is on other people, it's on other small groups, it's on other churches from other centuries we must expect false teachers and be appropriately prepared to respond to their clever arguments and to their destructive lies. So false teachers are a sure threat, but false teachers are also a serious threat. They are a serious threat. Second part of verse two, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Maybe you're convinced, maybe you believe that indeed false teachers will come. But maybe you're of the mindset that the threat is not that severe. You've read your Bible a couple times, you know how to do a word study, you listen to a couple sermons throughout the week, you're safe. But there are three things that make false teachers such a serious threat. We see that here. Proximity, method, and content. Their proximity, their method, and their content. These three things combine to make false teachers extremely dangerous. First is their proximity. It is among you. They are in close proximity. Among you literally entails in your midst. Paul says similarly in Acts 20, 29 through 30, with confidence, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The church at Ephesus, with an elder team mentored directly by the apostle Paul, still had fierce wolves that arised internally. So false teaching can and does arise internally within churches, but we must also see another danger in our day. Today, because of our unprecedented access to information, we have false teachers among us that may never walk through the door of Calvary Bible Church. Podcasts, sermons, music, prophecy pages, YouTube channels, Christian living books, websites, conference messages, popular movies and TV series. These can all be means by which we unknowingly intake false misrepresentations of Jesus Christ and false gospels. You do not need to meet a false teacher in person for them to have a devastating impact on the health of your soul what are you saturating your mind in? What messages are you soaking in? Are you really able to confidently assess the character of those that you're listening to? The proximity of false teachers makes them a serious threat, but their method also makes them a serious threat. Note that they secretly bring in these things. Their methods are subtle. Satan is crafty, Rarely does a false teacher show up wearing a I-come-bearing heresy pin. You can't visibly distinguish them from someone else. These false teachers, the second uh, Peter talks about here, were able to linger in the midst of the church, unidentified. That's why Peter wrote this. Usually, the messaging of false teachers is fairly ambiguous for quite a while. It's hard to detect The falsehood at first glance. It's subtle. One key way to evaluate a preacher, a song, a channel on YouTube is to ask yourself, what is there to disagree with? Not just, can I agree with this, but what is there to disagree with? And to ask, would this message cause offense to someone who does not embrace the biblical gospel? If someone was hearing this and they didn't believe the gospel, would they be offended? If not, The gospel might not be as clearly presented as you think. And also, don't think that Christian living books are somehow innately theologically neutral just because they don't use big theological words and it's not a theological textbook and it's mainly practical. That doesn't mean it's not theological. To the contrary, when blog posts, books, podcasts are just practical... That often means that the beliefs undergirding the content are so subtle that the average consumer fails to recognize the ideology behind the advice. So the secretive methods of these false teachers make them a serious threat and the content. The content makes them a serious threat. They bring in destructive heresies, as the end of verse 1 says. Their content is heretical. They bring actual heresy we throw that word around rather carelessly and sometimes we even jokingly label a minor point of disagreement with someone and say oh that's that's heresy but there is a great difference between heresy and error all heresy is erroneous but not all error is heretical i'll say that again all heresy is erroneous but not all error is heretical None of us have everything right. We are all wrong about some things. But heresy is not just being wrong. Heresy is any set of propositions or claims which if embraced and believed result in a person being eternally damned because it is a rejection of the biblical gospel and the true Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Heresy is any set of propositions or claims which if embraced and believed result in a person being eternally damned because it is a rejection of the biblical gospel and the true Jesus Christ. This is why verse one says they are destructive heresies. It is not a stretch to say that heresy is more deadly than physical death itself. Some claim that doctrine divides. They place a barrier between godly conduct, right living, and doctrinal truth, right thinking and emphasize that one is more important than the other. But true belief and true actions are a package deal. True beliefs and true actions are a package deal. Holy living and holy thinking walk hand in hand. And furthermore, it's doctrinal truth that actually unites believers. One pastor theologian said, the bond of holy unity is the simple truth. The bond of holy unity is the simple truth. As soon as we depart from that, nothing remains but dreadful discord. Picture that. The glue of our unity is the truth and the heat of heretical teaching threatens to to melt and weaken and dissolve that precious bond of believers and to splinter the church into an environment of disunity. A cry among many today is that we should focus less on preaching the Bible, focus less on carefully handling its doctrine, and instead we should just emphasize Jesus. Just love Jesus. Just preach Jesus. Because after all, it's all about Jesus, right? <sighs> on the surface, that sounds convincing. Until we follow the line of thinking and ask the question which Jesus? Which Jesus? Do we preach the Jesus of Islam and greatly esteem him as a prophet? Do we love the Jesus of the Mormons, the half-brother of Satan, whose atonement only provided the basis for physical resurrection and not ultimate salvation? Or do we follow the Jesus of the word of faith movement, in whose name we can claim healing and power and money and miracles? To proclaim any of these Jesuses is to at the same time deny the true Jesus and therefore to reject salvation. No matter what someone may have claimed, said, or done in the past, doctrine matters and biblical preaching matters because we must be careful that the Jesus we worship is actually the true Jesus and not the product of someone's fancies. The false teachers of Peter's day had come to reject the real and saving Jesus. Verse 1 says they were even denying the master who bought them. This language describes their condition as they had appeared to everyone who knew them. These false teachers were flying the banner of Christ. They had given every indication of being genuine believers at one time. These false teachers had really truly seemed to have been purchased by Christ, but eventually, Like pigs that return to wallow in the mud after a bath, their true nature was revealed through their return to wickedness. For a time, these teachers looked, talked, preached, and even lived like blood-cleansed and Christ-purchased Christians, but they had not truly experienced the heart transformation of the new covenant. They ultimately rejected and denied the true Jesus and threw off his rulership and authority, denying who they had once called master. And tragically, they will hear on that day, as Matthew 7 23 records, from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. The point of all this is that the claim to come in the name of Christ is not the metric by which we evaluate someone's credibility. Furthermore, someone's past sound theology or a previous credible profession of faith are not sufficient indicators to evaluate their current credibility as communicators of the truth. Many aspects of God's word are under attack today, but wrong views about Jesus Christ and salvation are a common theme among false teachers because Satan particularly assaults an accurate understanding of who Jesus is and how someone is to be saved. False teachers are a serious threat because the content of their message is destructive. So, false teachers are a serious threat. And in light of the fact that they are a serious threat, we must be watchful and we must know the word. Therefore, we must be watchful and we must know the word. False teachers will come and they pose a serious threat to the unity and the purity of the church. Question How will you recognize error if you are not well acquainted with the truth? How will you recognize error if you are not well acquainted with the truth? Answer, you won't. Do you take someone's claim to follow or preach Jesus at face value? Are you watchful? Are you discerning? Are you guarded? Or do you seek to determine which Jesus is being preached? A moment of investigation can be very insightful here. Which church are they a member of? Who endorses their ministry? How are they funded? Who trained and mentored them? Who do they partner with? To unquestioningly assume agreement with someone because they claim to come in the name of Christ is to accelerate your own deception. In the face of the serious threat of false teachers, we must also know the word. We must know the word. And I mean we individually, not just corporately. A local church's history of gospel fidelity provides no defense against false teaching in our own day. We must cling to God's written revelation as our source of truth as we encounter disorienting false teaching which tends towards the clouding of our own discernment. Only scripture will cut through that haze. So the threat of false teachers is sure, it is serious, and third, false teachers are a widespread Threat. They are a widespread threat. Look with me at verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. False teachers are a widespread threat because they have a widespread impact. And that impact is both internal to the church and external. Widespread internal impact is that many will follow, as we see at the beginning of verse 2 there will be a large portion of people who will follow false Christs, false prophets, and false teachers. And that means that things like the size of someone's social media following, the place that an artist has on the Christian charts, the amount of financial support that a TV show receives, a book's New York Times bestseller status, or the size of someone's church, in and of themselves do not provide any verification of someone's truthfulness. Scripture promises that many will follow false teachers. And note also that it is their sensuality that's followed in verse two. Many will follow their sensuality. Although usually not obvious, false teaching is often connected to some sort of immoral living, particularly areas of sexual sin. Usually their union is secretive and subtle, but you will find that sensuality and falsehood share a bed. It is striking to consider the number of cults which are marked by sexual indulgence and sensual practices. And the flesh welcomes false doctrines like that. Our flesh welcomes false doctrine which provides some sort of reasonable or even biblical justification for pursuing sinful desires. This ranges from the biblical scholar publishing a dissertation on why the Bible does not actually condemn homosexuality to the Christian self-help author providing emotional justification for an affair. This afternoon, tonight, tomorrow morning, if you want to find biblical support for pretty much any of your sinful desires with a few taps and a couple subscriptions, You can have a curated feed of daily or even hourly encouragement and support from seemingly authoritative and exceptionally helpful persons around the world. Need to find a champion for biblical masculinity to tell you it's okay to yell at your wife? There's a leadership book for that. Want someone to tell you that divorcing your husband is okay because God wants you to be happy? There are some very inspirational Instagram pages that will suit you wonderfully. Feeling like loneliness and sorrow justifies self indulgence and the gratification of the flesh? There are plenty of Christian counselors who would agree with you. Furthermore, you don't even need to seek them out. This teaching will find its way to you. The question is do you know your heart? Do you know your heart and its sinful tendencies well enough to know what sort of argument could prevail on you? Because these false teachings are gonna come and they're gonna appeal to something of your flesh. False teaching functions like a numbing agent which targets the conscience and provides justification for the pursuit of sinful desires. So false teachers will have a devastating and widespread internal impact through their sensuality, but widespread external impact as well. Second half of the verse says, the way of truth will be blasphemed. True Christianity is maligned and brought into disrepute because those who claim to teach Christ then do and say horrible things in the name of Christ. Centuries of believers before us have had to navigate this. They've had to think through how to evangelize their neighbors, how to evangelize their family members and loved ones. Who have been hurt by the church or deeply wronged by someone who claims to be a Christian. It's not new. False teachers have a widespread impact both internally and externally. Therefore, because they have this widespread influence, do not evaluate based on popularity. Do not evaluate based on popularity. Scripture says that many will be led astray. So the fact that there are many who attend a concert, claim membership in a certain denomination, or listen to a certain artist, does not mean that they should be listened to. More often than not, the most popular book on a given subject is not actually the best book on a given subject. Practically speaking, this shows the importance of personal counsel and recommendations from trusted, character-tested pastor-teachers those that you can actually see their life. We must not evaluate based on popularity, especially not from a distance. So false teachers are a sure, serious, and widespread threat. Fourthly, false teachers are a deceptive threat. They are a deceptive threat. Look at verse three. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They are greed Motivated. Their deception is flowing from greed. Verse 3 says, In their greed, similar to how sensuality and false teaching are close companions, greed is typically walking right alongside them. The financial motivation is usually fairly subtle, but Peter says it is a key motivator for their false words. To fuel this greed, they need to sell more books. Land bigger conferences, fill bigger auditoriums, acquire more clients, get more plays, downloads and likes, get more subscribers. From the greedy, for the greedy false teacher, every listener, every reader helps to contribute to their preferred lifestyle. Sadly, it must be said that there is no correlation between 501c3 status and gospel fidelity. Today, in America, your financial contributions to many false teachers will be tax-deductible. But who we support is not morally neutral. To practically assist in a false teacher's ministry is to take part in and share responsibility for their wicked actions. 2 John verses 10 and 11. So take great caution where you send your support and verse 3 also says that they will exploit you this concept of exploitation is a business term business terminology used to basically describe having a sense of misrepresentation of merchandise when a false teacher sells you a bag of advice the ingredients never match what the nutrition facts say they come bringing false words and we hear we hear the term false teaching and false words and we we typically think like, oh, that's, that's going to be obvious. But think of false words as true-sounding lies. True-sounding lies. The false words of the false teacher are deceptive. This sounds obvious, but it's so important to realize when you are deceived, you don't know it. When you are deceived, you don't know it. That is the whole reason it's so dangerous. The morally bankrupt sermon does not sound that bad. The false prophet references Revelation a lot. The prosperity gospel song is catchy. The therapist listens so well and offers such good advice. The cult leader is an extremely dynamic and engaging public speaker. And the professor, he's taught at the Christian university for three decades. Tragically, we're apt to lower our guard when we think that the environment is safe. But where in Scripture are you ever told to unbuckle or loosen the belt of truth? One thing I want to highlight that grieves me deeply is the particularly wicked deception of twisting Greek and Hebrew words to lead people astray. False teachers will reference the original languages to prompt unquestioning, glazed-eye, head-nodding, because after all, you can't trace the argument, And I have encountered arguments in very popular books, you probably have too, that appeal to a blatant manipulation of Greek and Hebrew word roots to deceive the reader. When the cultist shows up at your doorstep, they will pull out a Greek New Testament. This happened two months ago on our doorstep to try to intimidate you into surrendering your point because they'll show you it and you'll say, I I can't read that. Be extremely suspicious if someone claims that the true translation means something opposite to what a variety of literal English translations say. We have really good translations in English. We are abundantly blessed in this language. Do not let an author's appeal to the deeper meaning disarm your discernment. We are also abundantly blessed here at Calvary to have several individuals who have extensively studied the biblical languages, and who would be overjoyed to help clarify the meaning of contested verses. This is a resource that you should take advantage of, especially when you encounter twisted arguments based on Greek and Hebrew. So false teachers are a deceptive threat. Therefore, do not evaluate them based on their use of Christian words alone. Do not evaluate them based on their use of Christian words alone. Look for more than Bible verses, Look for more than Christian-sounding sayings. Look for sound handling of the Scriptures and a life which backs up the teaching. First, look for sound handling of Scripture. When tempting Jesus, Satan used Bible verses out of context, misapplied. Every false teacher has Bible verses. The question is, are they handling the Scriptures rightly? Only the clear truth of Scripture properly handled can cut through this haze. Second, look for a life that backs up the teaching. Do you know their life? Do you know their character? The second half of this chapter, which we won't get to this morning, goes in much more depth into that. How can you evaluate the life and character of someone who you only watch online or only see at a conference? Intaking theology through mediated formats means that you really only see the faults and the flaws that the false teacher wants you to see. So exercise exceptional caution when choosing the digital voices to fill your ears with. Be aware of that fact as you listen to sermons from people you've never met. Be aware of that when you listen to podcasts. Just know, I can't see their life. God has designed the church such that believers are placed in geographically limited and relationally close communities where both the teachers and the learners can know and love one another. Lean into the shepherds that God has placed in your life and over us here at Calvary. They have been charged by God in 1 Peter 5, 2 to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. And Hebrews 13, 17 says that our own leaders are keeping watch over our souls as those who will have to give an account. And we should respond to that shepherding in a way that makes it a joyful task for them. We learn by example, and we implement practical theology by imitation. In order to effectively apply and to imitate, we must know the under-shepherds and the teachers that we're learning from. So false teachers are a serious threat. They're a sure threat. They're widespread. They're a deceptive threat. Lastly, false teachers are a condemned threat they are a condemned threat verse 3 second half says their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep God's verdict on this teaching is not uncertain or to be determined though it may seem that their evil deceptions carry on unnoticed by God we must see that they are actively under God's condemnation Their condemnation is a present reality and their doom is sure. God knows how to deal with unrighteous sinners. Verses 4 through 10 are actually one sentence that boils down to this God knows. God knows. He knows how to rescue and he knows how to punish. We will look first at the proof that God knows how to deal with sinners, and then we'll touch on the fact that God knows how to rescue the godly. First, Peter cites three historical precedents that prove that God can simultaneously rescue and punish. Note that Peter references these three historical accounts as supporting points, almost in passing. His main point is that the people of God should not question God's ability and intentions to slay the wicked. The first precedent that Peter cites is in verse four. Sinful angels that rebelled. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The first proof of God's ability to punish the wicked that Peter references is the angels that rebelled in the days of Noah. This is in Genesis 6, one through three. These sons of God broke out against God's created order and Jude 6 pronounces that they did not stay within their own position of authority. These angelic beings now suffer the ongoing consequences even as they await final judgment. The account of these angels undergoing punishment illustrates something specific. It illustrates that no being, no matter how po- powerful, no matter how glorious, can overthrow God's authority. Though false teachers are certainly a sobering threat to the churches, God's sovereignty is not thwarted by wicked rebellion of any creature, human or angelic. So the, pres- the second precedent is the world in Noah's day. Verse five. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Genesis six through eight provides the historical record of when God destroyed the whole world of humanity, but spared eight people. In the same way that God's authority is unthreatened by the opposition of mighty angelic rebels, likewise, his sure purposes and judicial powers are not overwhelmed, though the whole world turn against him. God is not obligated to side with the majority. He freely saved eight while simultaneously drowning millions who persisted in their rebellion against him. The third precedent that Peter cites is Sodom and Gomorrah, verses six through eight. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Genesis 19 documents God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. These were two cities which had come to openly embrace sexual immorality and homosexuality. The men of that city, in their wickedness, attempted to violate Lot's angelic house house guests, but God rescued Lot immediately prior to reducing the cities to ashes through raining fire and brimstone down on the ungodly. God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrates that God's punishment of the wicked is utterly unaffected by the moral norms of a society or culture. In Sodom and Gomorrah, wicked acts and desires had become accepted, socially accepted and socially commonplace. In that culture, it was Lot who was the backwards bigot. But God is in no way obligated to judge according to the self-made standards of morality of any given culture, society, or era. Also note in verse six that he made them an example making them an example. As a side note, this is one of the many reasons to read the Old Testament regularly because it furnishes our minds with vivid examples of God's response to sin but also his abundant mercy toward those who turn to him in faith. We can also learn from Lot's example in verse seven and eight, verses seven and eight. Lot provides us an example for how to respond to and how to live in a wicked society. Verse seven, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Two practical lessons from Lot's life. He was emotionally moved. Lot was emotionally moved. He was distressed. Are we grieved? Are we pained? Are we distressed when we see the sensual conduct of the wicked in our day? So often we're moved, but we're moved in the wrong direction, we're moved towards anger or bitterness. Lot was distressed. He was emotionally moved. When our hearts are moved, distressed and tormented by the evil around us, it is an appropriate and a fitting response to the age that we live in. He was emotionally moved, but he was emotionally moved Well, he was morally unmoved. He was morally unmoved. He's called righteous Lot here. As we encounter the ungodliness in the world every day, do we live among the lost in such a way that we stand out? We should stick out like a sore thumb. Lot made no effort to blend into his culture. He made no effort to blend into his city. Lot did not allow the lawlessness of his day to be replicated in his own heart. So, with these three examples, these three historical precedents, these things establish that God's justice is unaffected by the might or the power of those beings that are rebelling. It's unaffected by the vastness of the rebellion, and it is unaffected by the social or cultural acceptability of the rebellion. And verse 9 through 10 shows that the sure future of the wicked is punishment and judgment. We'll read the first part of verse 9 in a moment, but verse 9 reads, Then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The punishment of the unrighteous is a present reality. Verse 9 shows that God is presently keeping the unrighteous under punishment even as they await final judgment. Furthermore, Peter highlights that the particular punishment, a particular punishment is reserved for those two categories mentioned in verse 10. And these two categories fit very closely with what the false teachers came bringing. Verse 10 says, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Indulgence in defiling passions was a key feature of the false teachers and the practices of these men. Furthermore, the rejection of God instituted authority was characteristic of these false teachers as well as they threw off the apostolic teaching and the authoritative writings of scripture. So, God knows how to punish the wicked. There can be no question. But, God knows how to rescue the godly. Look at the beginning of verse nine. Then... In light of all those things that were referenced, those historical precedents, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Among the many tragedies of war is the grave reality that often the innocent are killed right alongside the enemy. This happens on both sides, innocent lives lost. But in the day of the Lord, there will be no such collateral damage as God sits in judgment. The righteous will be rescued even as the unrighteous will be punished for their wickedness. Jesus promised that he would preserve his disciples. John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Although false teachers will surely be punished for their evil, their punishment stands in sharp contrast to the believer's sure rescue. Because false teachers are a condemned threat, we should trust in God's deliverance of his own. Therefore, we should trust in God's deliverance of his own. We can trust that God is well-suited for the task of judging every human heart accurately, and that he will make all things right in the end when he judges humanity if you are here today, I should say, for those of you who are here today, and you're unsure of what your standing is before God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. God is perfect in holiness. He's perfect in justice, unlike mankind, who was made in his image, but who rebelled against him. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That characterizes everyone. Our sinfulness has placed us at enmity with God because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And he has promised to pour out his wrath on the ungodly. In the day of judgment, no righteous action, no righteous effort will stand. No false Christ will save and no false teachers winsome words will deceive the judge of all the earth but God did not leave humanity in our helpless sinful state compelled by unfathomable love he sent his only son to die in our place for our sins the only hope that we have for salvation is Jesus Christ who said I am the way I am the truth I am the life No one comes to the Father except through me. Only Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in his word, fully God, fully man, perfectly sinless, can provide the atonement necessary. In his crucifixion on the cross, he paid the price for our sins once for all, suffering and dying as he endured the wrath of God in our place. He physically rose from the dead on the third day and verified his victory over death. He ascended into heaven and is surely coming back again. Though he may seem, from our point of view, to be rather delayed in his coming, we have to see 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10, later on in this book, which says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ for the free gift of salvation. Christ is our only hope for salvation on the last day, and he is our only hope in this day, filled with false teachers. Certainly, false teaching should prompt us to be discerning and to be watchful, but it should also produce trust. And that's what Peter points to here. Our hope is not our discernment. Our hope is not in our discernment. Our hope is in our Savior. In the face of false teaching, we should be driven to find our refuge in our God who has saved us and who will save us. The threat of false teaching is sobering, and the proper response to a passage like this is to feel the weight of sin's impact on, on humanity. Our church family is not immune to these threats. No church family is immune to these threats. Do not be deceived into thinking that you cannot be deceived. Do not be deceived into thinking that you cannot be deceived. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for the reminder that your word gives us that we sojourn in enemy territory. We are surrounded by those that would lead us astray. We are surrounded by temptations to turn aside from what you've commanded us to do. Lord, deliver us. Help us to trust in you. Truly, that can be our only response when we realize the situation in which your church exists. We are must trust in you, Lord. So help us to do that. Help us to recognize for each individual situation in life here what applications need to be implemented. We trust your spirit's work in that. We long for your return, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well please stand-